Hi, welcome to the New Covenant Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast, a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, in the San Francisco Bay Area. All right, well, let's go ahead and get started. I'm going to read uh, from John chapter 4, verses uh, 19 through 24. You remember the context that this is uh, part of Jesus' discussion with the woman at the well. And uh, after there is the, the back and forth regarding the number of husbands that the woman has, um, she says in verse 19, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where, you ought, where one ought to worship. So what's going on here with her question is, uh, the Samaritans did not receive the rest of the Old Testament. They only received the Pentateuch. And the place where God was going to choose to set his name was, is not specifically mentioned in Deuteronomy. It, there's just said that there will be a place. Mount Gerizim actually figures very prominently in the Pentateuch. And so the Samaritans had decided that they believed that Mount Gerizim was actually the place that God had chosen to set his name. So it was convenient for them since they controlled that territory. Um, and... Um, so, there, so the woman now is referencing this debate between the Samaritans and the Jews because obviously if you take into account the Old Testament as a whole, Jerusalem is clearly the place to worship. And so Jesus says to her, verse 21, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. So there, there Christ is clearly saying that the Jews are right. Uh, because of the witness of the whole Old Testament. But notice there's this change with verse 23. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do pray that you would, would help us to understand your word as it relates to the worship of your name. Lord, we, we do ask that you would uh, help us to understand what we do in the worship service, that we might uh, engage with our entire hearts, our entire beings in the worship of your name, that we would be able to follow what is going on and that our hearts would be lifted to you as we think of the glory of the worship that's been revealed in the scriptures. For Lord, we do ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, so um, last week we looked at different ways of worshiping, and particularly we were looking at the ways that the Reformed Church is typically uh, not followed. And so we, we looked at uh, the, the worship of images through the, um, by the Roman Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox. We also looked at the modern worship practices, so you know, kind of a broadly evangelical world, what you'll find. And we gave some reasons as to why uh, these things are not consistent with, uh, with the re regular principle. And so the goal for today will be to build back and to show um, why it is that we actually do the things that we do. So we've, we've shown the things that I've been saying we do not have warrant for, but what are the things that we do have warrant for, and why is it that we do them the way that we do them? So that will be the thing that we are addressing now. Now, it was uh, brought up to me by someone in a, a personal conversation uh, uh, about the um, images thing, that uh, there was a concern that I, I was uh, uh, guilty of uh, the straw man 
uh, fallacy, which is not not presenting the, the best arguments for the Eastern Orthodox. Uh, so I do want to just, just for the sake of completeness, briefly touch on uh, one of the arguments that I, I, I did actually mention briefly, but I did not go into uh, in great detail. And that is the argument that um, the Eastern Orthodox do use with regard to uh, the incarnation. So there is an argument that, you know, in the Old Testament, we couldn't make an image of God, but clearly God has become man, and therefore we can make an image of Christ. Um, the reason I didn't spend too much time on this was not out of any concern of um, trying to, um, you know, not represent the other side well, but just that there is a, a large gap, and this will be the main bulk of my argument against it. There's a large gap between um, being able to make an image of Christ because he became man, which I'm not saying that that's true, and, but then being able to then worship an image of Christ in worship, and then beyond that, to then worship the saints and their images as well. Um, so at most, the argument with regard to the incarnation can prove at most that you could make an image of Christ. There would still be no positive warrant for the worship of an image. So there's, it's not the case that you know all of the, the pagan nations in the Old Testament and even down to this day, you, know, you can go anywhere in the world, and this is this is the way every religion worships. They, they, you know, we, when, when, uh, when we were in China, we would see images like this all the time, and people would go and they would bow down before the images. And um, the way that the world is always worshipped is through images. Um, the fact that there is an incarnation, uh, the most that could prove is that you can make an image of Christ. It does not even prove that you could use an image of Christ in worship. There's still no positive warrant for it. And it certainly does not prove that the, that the images of the saints should be used in worship in any context. Um, so um, one of the arguments that's given is uh, from Deuteronomy chapter 4, the idea, of, um, the idea that uh, you saw no image as you were with God on the mountain, referring back to Mount Sinai. And then the, the argument goes, well, Christ is the image of God. And therefore, we have seen an image now, and therefore, there is something that's changed. Again, the most that could prove is that you could make an image of God, but uh, of Christ. One of the ways that that breaks down is typically the passages that are used to say that Christ is the image of God are actually referring to who Christ is in eternity, and therefore, really are not related to the incarnation. So Christ did not become the image of God upon the incarnation. He always was the image of God as the eternal Son. Uh, so, for instance, in, in Colossians chapter 1, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were made, and in him all things hold together. So the, the thing that proves that Christ is the image of God is not his incarnation, but rather that he is the creator of all things and the sustainer of all things, which means in terms of Christ being the image of God, um, he's actually declared to be an invisible image. And so again, it's, it's, um, it becomes a shortcoming, I think, even with the idea of making an image of Christ. But all that to say, that's, that's one of the other arguments that's given, and I, I do understand that that is perceived to be one of the stronger arguments. So um, I did want to just touch on that briefly. Uh, one of the things, though, that this, uh, let me, I'll give a chance for questions on that. Yep. So my view would be that it would, you should not have a, any images of Christ. So, so, so 
what I was arguing with regard to the Eastern Orthodox position, because I'm, I'm really trying to deal just with worship, um, and whether or not you can make an image of Christ would probably be an entire lesson. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm sort of trying to avoid going down that rabbit hole. But um, the most that could be proved from the incarnation is that you could make an image of Christ. I don't think it actually proves that. Um, so I, I do think um, that it would still be a violation of the second commandment um, to have an image of Christ. It is a less, it is certainly a less egregious violation of the second commandment. And one that I think with regard to other Christians is much easier to look past. There, there have even been reformed people that have held that to that view, um, that you can make an image of Christ as long as it's not used in worship. Like, so like things like storybook Bibles, uh, they would accept that sort of thing. Um, we, we go out of our way to try to find storybook Bibles that do not have images of Christ. Um, so, um, so there's definitely a, a gradient in terms of how egregious the sin could be with regard to these things, and that, that would affect the way that we, that we view it. So th th this would be something that there are dis there's disagreement even within the reform camp, so to speak. John? Okay. Okay, so I, again, I, if, if, yeah, if I, in another context, I, would, I can tackle the issue of images of Christ in more detail, but again, if I try to do it now, I don't think I'm going to get to most of what I've got planned, which is I really do want to try to build into why we do what we do in worship. And the goal of, the, of, the, of what, we've, what I've said with regard to images was really just to show um, why we do not have a Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox worship, and then also, secondly, why we do not have a worship service that would look like a, you know, modern worship, that sort of thing. So um, let me just say, I'm going to just restrict it to that. So um, one of the things, though, that this does show, both the, the text from Deuteronomy 4 and the text from John 4 that we see, and this is something actually of a, of a parallel, um, you know, the idea of God being spirit, that's the thing that determines how we are to worship. Uh, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. This would actually be a, a point of consistency between the Old and New in terms of worship. So the nature of God and what we believe about God determines the nature of our worship. So one of the things that we see with uh, image worship and not getting into the Roman Catholic thing, but now just talking about um, pagan religion and worship, the reason why they have, and so what I'd be arguing is that there's a, those who try to use images in worship are really blending the two. But with regard to pagan worship, the reason why they think that you can worship through images is because they have a pantheistic worldview. There is an inherent connection between all things in the universe, and therefore the image really can mediate with some kind of other divine presence. There's nothing beyond the world, and all things are connected, and therefore why wouldn't it be the case that you could worship by images. Uh, that's, that's the logic of the, the pagan religions in the time of, of the Old Testament and even down to today. Um, there's a denial of transcendence, and that denial of transcendence means that things are flattened out such that the worship of images becomes a, a conceivably valid means of, of worshiping God or the gods. Um, so worship then is always an expression of what we believe. Worship is always an expression of what we believe. It's sort of the culmination. This is something that um, Eastern Orthodox authors argue a lot. You know, they, they would say that, you know, that they would defend their views with regard to images, with regard to the, the incarnation of Christ. And so for them, the, the worship through images is the kind of the culmination of their theology. 
but we actually say the same thing. Worship is the culmination of our theology. It's really our theology that's put into practice. And really, um, the things that we believe about God and the nature of God, and even beyond that, what we believe about salvation is what we are working out in our worship. And so this is clearly the case in the Old Testament. Um, if you were with us for the, the sermons on Deuteronomy, this came out in a few places. Uh, in Deuteronomy chapter uh, 16, Moses goes over some of the, the, the three festivals where all Jews had to approach Jerusalem. And uh, one of the things that, that I pointed out in those sermons was, particularly with the Passover, is that the, the feast of the Passover, the unleavened bread that followed, uh, all of it was related in some way to the actual Exodus event. So the idea is that the worship of God in the Passover, was every element in it was meant to be a picture of the redemption that they, that, that they had actually received uh, through God um, by Moses. And so the, the worship is tied to what they believed about God and what they believed about salvation. And the same thing is true for our worship. So, and this is something that comes out again in John chapter 4. We will worship God in spirit and in truth. And the reason is because God is spirit. So the spiritual nature of God determines the spiritual nature of our worship. Because God is spirit, therefore there's a correspondence with the way in which we worship. And so, um, and so this is what we would expect to find uh, in the New Testament in terms of, uh, of uh, the different elements and what things we have positive warrant for uh, in the scriptures. Uh, so any, any questions on that basic idea that what we, our worship is meant to correspond to our theology? Yeah, I think both. I, I think both. Yeah, yeah. I, I, certainly both in the context. I think um, the place is certainly being emphasized. Um, but the, the reason why it can be anywhere is because it is in spirit. If it weren't in spirit, then you would ha you'd be stuck to a physical place. But we can worship anywhere. We can worship anywhere. Like a public worship. That's right. Okay. So, and, 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 and even just to go in, into that a little bit more, um, what was happening in Old Testament worship, the reason why it was constrained to Jerusalem is because God's presence filled the temple. And so God's presence fills the temple, you've got to go where God's presence is. But now in the New Testament, we're told that wherever two or more are gathered in the name of Christ, there Christ is in the midst of his people. We're told that, that the temple is replaced now with the people of God and that God's spirit indwells us. And we are, as Ephesians 2 says, we're being built up into a spiritual dwelling of God. God dwells in us by the Spirit. And so all of the temple theology, the presence of God, is fulfilled in, in us as people. And therefore, you know, that, that's the reason why we, we don't need temple-looking things in our worship, because we are the temple. But we are meeting here, and my question is, yeah. do we Yeah, yeah. Is that where we got this word? It is clearly where we got the word, yep. So, um, what is a sanctuary? Huh? What is a sanctuary? Yeah, so a sanctuary would be a holy place. So, so um, you know, any, any word that's got the, the sanct root is going to be, is gonna, yeah, sanctification, uh, is going to be related to the idea of holy. 
So anything that's holy is holy because it's set apart for God. So that's the idea of holy. Um, so yeah, there's, a, there's some back and forth in terms of whether or not we should call the place that we meet a sanctuary. I have no real problem with it as long as a very clear qualification is kept in mind, which is that it is not a sanctuary like the Old Testament sanctuaries. Um, so it's not, the, the, like, the, like the temple was kind of objectively holy because of how it was made and, the, and all the things related to the instructions. We could say that this is a holy place in the sense that we have chosen to set it apart as the place where we as the true temples of God, as the true temple of God worships but it's really only significant insofar as we've chosen to meet here. And the fact that we do meet here every week, you know, if someone wants to call it sanctuary, I, I, don't, I don't think there's a problem with it. But it's not really objectively so in the same way as, as an Old Testament uh, sanctuary would be. So like, you know, like the, so the temple is called um, a sanctuary in Isaiah chapter eight. Uh, mikdash is what would be the, the word in, in Hebrew. And um, um, it, again, it's, it's more objectively so because of all the things surrounding it. But all those things, there, there's, there's no real parallel between those things and our place of worship now. The parallels are with us. We are being built up as living stones into the dwelling place of God, as Peter will say in 1 Peter 2. So, um, but yeah, so all those things are, 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 meant, are just meant to say that there's, there's a, a correlation between the way we worship and what we believe. So that, that point is clear. Any, any questions on, on that? So it, it is to be a culmination, and, and hopefully this helps you then to see, you know, as we go through uh, the worship service, hopefully this will help you to participate in it well and to um, really think through um, the significance of the things that we believe and why it is then that you ought to be really thinking hard about what you are doing in worship. So um, let me then really quickly, if you have a bulletin, it would probably be good to, um, good to uh, take a look at it. Because we're going to go through it, and I'm going to show the positive warrant for each of the, the things in our um, worship service. What I'm going to do is I'm going to look more broadly at the elements and show the warrant for them. And then there's a particular order as to why we do certain things in the order that we do them, which would be more related to the form that the elements take. So if you remember, there's this distinction between form and elements. Elements are the specific things that we do, like reading the Bible, preaching, prayer. Um, the form, though, would be like, you know, that like one of the readings is a call to worship, um, and then what text it is. Um, I, I would say the call to worship could be actually considered an element in itself, but you can see there's kind of an affinity with reading and uh, the call to worship. So, and so I, I will show, I guess, broadly, uh, more broadly, the, the warrant for the call to worship. Um, things like confession of sin are very much related to prayer. And so the, I'm going to deal with the confession of sin more particularly in, in the form element as to why we do this, where we do it. Uh, so just a few things then in terms of, this will be broad things to show the warrant. Uh, first, with regard to the public reading of Scripture, uh, comes from 1 Timothy 4, verse 13, where the Apostle Paul says, Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. So, uh, there the reading is the public reading of Scripture. Uh, exhortation would actually include preaching, so in, in this, this sense, this verse kind of takes up two birds with one stone. Uh, there's other warrant for preaching in uh, 2 Timothy 4, um, a great exhortation that the Apostle Paul gives to Timothy with regard to the preaching of the Word. 
Um, singing is found in Ephesians chapter 5 and Colossians chapter 3, instructing one another in psalms, hymns, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, uh, that text. Um, that's clearly in the context of, of worship, the worship service. Uh, and so we are to, if we're to obey that instruction, we have to be singing in the worship service. Um, with regard to prayer, prayer is a part of the worship service in, um, in 1 Timothy 2 where there is an exhortation that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving thanks be, be made for all men. Uh, then, then, particularly in verse 8, there are more particular instructions for prayer in the context of the worship service. Um, so, for instance, there are, there's also instructions in 1 Timothy 2, verse 9, about women's clothing. Uh, that's particularly for the worship service. Women being silent in the church. Obviously, it's related to the worship service. Not, it doesn't mean that once a woman like walks through the doors of a church, she can no longer speak. It's t talking about the worship service. Um, so also, and then in that context, there are men who are to pray. So men are the ones who lead in worship in the context of the worship service. And uh, they pray lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. So there is a, the, a command in the scriptures to uh, worship the Lord via prayer. Um, also then with regard to the sacraments, we have a warrant for... Uh, baptism occasionally with uh, Matthew chapter 28, the great institution of baptism text, which is also the, the Great Commission. Um, there's actually a lot of instructions with regard to the, uh, to the Lord's Supper in, in 1 Corinthians 11. We actually use that sometimes for the, uh, um, for the institution text. Um, and Paul is clearly dealing there with the, with the, um, with the public worship service. Actually, everything from... Um, 1 Corinthians 11 through 14 is dealing with the worship service. So uh, all those things would be positive warrant. Um, and I think those are the major elements that I'm going to deal with in this context. Any, any questions? Anything that um, I have perhaps left out? There were Sundays when other church used the form of uh, housing. Is this happen today? Yeah, you know... I have read a couple books. I, I think it's a lot of people claim to be following Calvin <laughs> in their worship order. And I think the observation that I've made is everyone thinks they're following Calvin. Everyone does it a little bit differently. And everyone's worship looks just about the same. So I, th I, think, I think we would fall into that, uh, that same uh, pattern. I don't know if we are following exactly the way Calvin did it. But... Um, all Reformed churches basically do. And the reason is because if you're just looking for what the scriptures say, it's just not going to change. Um, and so all, all Reformed worship tends to look very similar. And there is an advantage to this. You, know, you can go anywhere in the world, and I, I've mentioned this a few weeks ago, you can go anywhere in the world and in any century of the Christian church and feel right at home in the worship of God. They'll be worshiping just the way that we do. I mean, there will always be some differences. But like the differences that we would have with, I don't know, Sunnyvale are not going to be significantly different from the differences that we would have with Calvin. Um, the, you know, it's, it, there's the, there's going to be minor variation, but basically the same order. And so you, you would be able to follow the logic of um, Reformed worship anywhere. Let me get into the, um, our actual liturgy. And this will hopefully fill in some of the, the, the missing gaps. But, but now I think you've seen at least the, the broad warrant for each of the uh, particular elements. Um, so the way the Reformed worship service is structured 
is there are certain movements. So there are a number of elements that are typically put together. And those elements together form basically a, a movement with regard to, it all has like a certain theology. There's a certain uh, aim and goal with regard to the worship. And um, so there is a logic even to that. So one of the things that we see from, this would be going back to like the second century. So this is very, very old. Uh, Justin Martyr in his, um, I think it's his second, yeah, it's his second apology. And his second apology towards the end has a, a, actually a description. I hope I'm not getting this confused with the first apology. Anyway, it's the end of the first or second apology. And um, he actually has a description of the worship service as it was done in the early church. And again, this is mid-second century, so this is very, very long ago. And the, the basic order was is that there was a, a ministry of the word section followed by a ministry of the table. And so there was this, there was this uh, sense in which um, there was a logic to um, things related to the word followed by things related to the table, which would be the Lord's Supper. And the reason for this is because the, the significance of the table is really uh, filled out and expounded by the word. So you have to have the word to go with the, the table, so the table being the Lord's Supper. And so that's, that's the, the logic for the basic division of our worship service. You could kind of cut it into two halves there. Obviously, they're, they're unequal halves in that way, but um, the, the preaching is then followed by the Lord's Supper. So the, the Lord's Supper is, um, in a sense, a response to the preaching, and it receives its significance and explanation in the preaching of the Word of God. Um, and then moving back then all the way up to the, the top, just wanted to lay that groundwork with the early church to show we, we do have some consistency, uh, consistency going back thousands of years. Um, the first thing that happens in the worship service is that God calls us to worship and he greets us. The reason this is always in the beginning of a worship service is because what's happening is, is we are being ushered into God's presence. And so the, the pattern and the warrant really for the call to worship, and the, and the reason why I'm kind of saying there's, it's somewhat related to form, uh, is because um, you always have in the Psalms, for instance, the author, at least very regularly, will call the people of God to worship. So in the context of like uh, approaching the temple, the Psalms that are related to that, so the public worship of God in the Old Testament, there would be a call for God's people to worship. And so what's, what's happening is, is that we're basically following the, the pattern of the way the scriptures are used in worship in the scriptures and, and saying that our worship service needs to reflect that. And it, it makes sense logically why, why it is that we would begin with a call to worship. So um, you know, sometimes in other churches there will be a prayer that God would come and be with us. In our churches, God himself calls us. He's the one who's here and he beckons us to come. And so one of the things that, that this would bring up as well, and this is more broad in terms of a, a basic thing with regard to the worship service, is that our worship is dialogical um, in the sense that there's a dialogue between us and God. So the, the basic premise of our worship is, is that we are meeting with God. Um, this comes out even in the Old Testament. The tabernacle is called either the tent or the dwelling place. It's a dwelling place for God, or it's also called the tent of meeting. So it's either the dwelling related to the presence of God, it is where God's name dwells, but it's also the tent of meeting where God's people meet with the one who dwells in the, in the tent. And so that idea of meeting with God is preserved in our worship as well. We meet with God, and there are some things that uh, God says to us, and there are some things that we say back to God. And this is the way that we are, in this sense, interacting truly with God. Now, um, uh, one of the things that God did is 
Because when, when God actually spoke with his people, they cowered in fear and begged that God would never speak to them like that again. He's appointed ministers to speak on his behalf. And so again, if you're with us for the Deuteronomy series, there were a number of sermons on this, um, the, the end of Deuteronomy 5. Um, so the reason why in the worship service we don't actually hear God's voice from heaven is because we would die and we wouldn't actually like it. And so what God's done is he said, okay, I'm going to appoint people to speak on my behalf and you are to receive those words as they are truly coming from me and to recognize that I am speaking in this person and the reason I'm not thundering from heaven is because you would die. And so really, this, this really grounds a lot of significance in the things that happen in the worship service. It can be easy to think, you know, I'm not that outwardly impressive, just a person, just like you're a person. I have all these weaknesses. You can see all of my weaknesses. And so it can be easy to think, you know, it's just one person who's getting up there and speaking words from the Bible. But what gives the significance to what's happening is that I have been set aside by God to represent him and to speak his words on his behalf to you. And so when that call to worship comes, uh, what's really happening is God himself is beckoning you to come into his presence. And so it's quite a significant thing. And then as you then come, there is a greeting that goes out. And this would be, again, following now the logic, not of the Psalms, but of the epistles. All the epistles begin with a greeting. The epistles were read in the context of a worship service. And so there is, there is good reason for us to follow the logic of the epistles as well for our worship service. And so what happens then is we come into the presence of God God himself is speaking to us, calling us into his presence. And then God then greets us. So when, when I give the greeting, uh, I am giving that greeting on behalf of God. We then, uh, as a church, respond in prayer to God, and we respond in praising him. So you'll notice that there's a, a, there's a distinction between um, the different kinds of prayers that we offer up to God in different parts of the service. And so the, the idea is that in the beginning, when we first come into the presence of God, God calls us to worship, we immediately respond with praise. And so what happens is, God calls us to worship, he greets us, and then I, now representing the congregation, um, will then offer up a prayer of, of praise and thanksgiving to God for all that he has done uh, for us. Um, the idea that the minister would be, in this sense, a, in something of a mediator, um, is found in um, Exodus chapter 19, uh, and, and in uh, Exodus 24 as well, with Moses. So part of what happens is, on Mount Sinai, the people could not bear to hear the word of God. And so then God appointed Moses to take the word of God to the people. And then he would also then take the word of the people back to God. And so there was this sense in which the, the, the dialogue went both ways, but through the one who is sort of set apart to, to be the, the go-between. And that's what a minister does in the worship service. So there are things that, that I do representing God to you, and I speak, and you are really to receive it as God speaking. Um, if, if there was no provision for this, he would thunder from heaven. And, um, and then I then represent you back to God. And as we are now in his presence, we respond with worshiping and praising him. This is then immediately followed with a hymn. And this hymn is always going to be a hymn centered on the praise and worship of God. So there may be other kinds of hymns that we give that would be related to other parts of the worship service. There may be hymns that are appropriate for confessions of sin, um, hymns that are appropriate for something I'm preaching on, hymns that are appropriate for just any number of things. Um, but the first hymn is always going to be a hymn related to worship and praise specifically. And this is, again, because of the logic. The first movement is we come into God's presence, we worship him. Because we're, we're in awe of his presence. 
Um, so that, that's the first movement. So that would take us through those, uh, those first uh, four elements or so. Uh, any, uh, any questions on that in terms of the logic of that? All right. So one of the things that we see as we come into the presence of God is that um, all the time in the scriptures, the first thing that happens is the people of God are struck with their own sinfulness. There's an immediate sense of awe, and we respond back in praise to God. But then immediately after that, we're struck with the greatness of God and also our own sins. And this is the reason why it's very normal in Reformed worship to, to then move directly into a confession of sin. And in this way then, especially in this element and this, this movement, we are really um, showing our belief in the core of the gospel. We are sinners. We need God's mercy. We call to him for that mercy and grace. He gives it to us. Um, so the idea of the, the forgiveness of sins, God's greatness, our own sins, uh, that's immediately what happens. And so therefore, we confess our sins to God and we then receive assurance of pardon. We all confess the sins to God because that's an element where we are bringing words to God. I give to you the assurance of pardon because I'm the one that represents God's word back to you. And so there is this dialogue. We confess our sins to God, and he tells us our sins are, in fact, forgiven. Um, so just to show this, this movement, uh, probably the, the best place to go would be Isaiah chapter 6. Uh, you know, Isaiah comes into the presence of God in a vision. He's in the temple. The glory of God fills the temple. The train of his robe fills the temple. Uh, there's smoke. And the first thing he does is he says, woe is me. For I am a sinful man, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst the uh, people of unclean lips. So he confesses his sins. Immediately then, an angel takes coals from the altar. And so all this is in the context of worship. Um, it takes a coal from the altar and then touches it to Isaiah's lips. And he says, you've been cleansed. So there is, um, when you come into the presence of God, we immediately recognize our own sins. We confess our sins to God, and then he, he forgives us. Confession of sin is really a... Uh, in some sense, a, a corporate prayer that we're offering up to God, confession of sin being a, a part of prayer. So the warrant for it specifically comes from prayer. The logic of this kind of prayer comes from the fact that this is always what happens when people come into the presence of God. Um, so there's, a, there's something of a gospel movement where we, are, um, where we, um, we confess our sins, we're, we're forgiven, and that would be on the basis of the work of the Lord uh, Jesus Christ. Um, one of the things I really appreciate about the church in uh, Berkeley, if you've ever visited the OPC church there, um, they actually have a bulletin where they've got the, the movements of the worship service actually marked out. So like there'll be like you know, three or four elements, and it'll be like this is like the movement of praise and three or four more elements. I, I don't remember what uh, Pastor Fortner calls all of them. Uh, he actually said that I think he got that from a, a class on worship that the OPC does for ministers. Um, so I thought that that was... a that was a great idea. I always, I always thought that that was a really easy way to help people see what's happening in the worship service. Um, so for us then, we, we have Psalm uh, 12 here coming up this, this morning. Uh, we, you know, what we're doing here is we, we do uh, a Psalm of the Month. So this would be a thing that would be, of course, free. Um, you know, anyone can choose to do uh, any kind of, of different uh, Psalm at this point or hymn. It would be... Um, you know, fitting to do something related to a confession of sin or assurance of pardon, of course. Um, the next thing that we do then is a, the Apostles' Creed, so a confession of faith, followed by the tithes and the offerings. And uh, this would really then kind of round out the, um, this movement in, in some ways. Um, one of the things, and actually there was a change that I made on this when I was going through this in Deuteronomy um, 
because of the connection here. And in Deuteronomy 26, one of the things that's really interesting is that when the people of God come before him to bring their tithes and offerings, there is actually an instruction that they give a profession of faith, a confession of faith, that's um, basically related to the, um, uh, to the salvation that they had received to that point. And so the idea is that they come confessing their faith to God, and then the gifts that they offer are offered in response to the salvation they have received and that they confess to believe in. Um, so, of course, you know, in our Reformed theology, we, are, um, we believe very much in the significance of faith. And so it's right and fitting for us to confess our faith to God. There are actually confessions of faith in the New Testament as well, in epistles, uh, and those would have been read during the worship service. Our confessions of faith are built on the Great Commission. They're expansions of the Great Commission. They're expanded simply to exclude heretics, uh, and then they use scriptural language throughout, so that's the reason why, uh, why it is that we do that. But uh, um, let me just read real quickly from um, Deuteronomy 26, as you'll see the connection then between the confession of faith and the tithes. Then the priest shall take the basket, that would be the, the basket with the tithes, the offering, out of your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. And you shall answer and say before the Lord your God, My father was a Syrian, about to perish, and he went down to Egypt and dwelt there, few in number. And there he became a, a nation, great and mighty and populous. But the Egyptians mistreated us, afflicted us, and laid hard bondage on us. Then we cried out to the Lord our uh, God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and looked on our affliction and our labor and our oppression. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm, with great terror and with signs and wonders. He has brought us to this place and, he, and has given us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now behold, I have brought the first fruits of the land, which you, O Lord, have given me. So the idea is that in the context of the, of the offering, there is a confession of faith. We, we are confessing to God. We really do believe all these things, these great and wondrous things that you have done that are summarized in this creed. We have faith in these things and in response to not just us saying we believe, but also declaring to you our thankfulness for doing these things, we then offer our gifts to you. Um, so that's the reason for the, the movement uh, there. And, I, and there would be some variation here, I think. I don't think um, all churches would see this connection, so I, I will admit that this is something that, um, that I'm doing personally, and that's, that's the reason, logically, why I'm putting that there. Um, any questions on, on that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and, I, and I, I, churches have historically done both. Um, yeah, I, our church in Greenville did it before. I, I know that uh, I know Sunnyvale has had both before and after. I, th I think the I think the the logic is, yeah, in some way it needs to be related to the word and a response to the word and a testimony of our faith in the word that we've heard in some way. Um, so it can come before or it can come after, but the idea is, is that, um, you know, sometimes it's put after the assurance of pardon there. It's thankfulness for the assurance that we've, uh, the pardon that we've received. So part, as part of the end of that gospel movement. So the idea is we, you know, we confess our sins to God, we receive pardon and then we're thankful for that. And so we, we give uh, the tithe and the offering. I think any of those places are, are okay and fine. And it would be somewhat free in terms of, um, the logic of, of those kinds of things. Oh, sorry. I, I didn't mean they did both at the same time. I mean that there was a time that they did before 
and then there was another time that they switched it to doing it after. I actually, I'm trying to think here. I don't know if they do it before or after now. So I was there not too long ago, and I don't, just don't remember. I do know that it changed from one to the other at some point in their history. So yeah, so they, they did not do, um, they, they were not uh, like taking the tithe after every element of, Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, the, so I will say as well, there is a difference, a, a difference of opinion within Reformed circles with whether or not the collection is an element, and so that's that's really the reason why some will just have it out. Uh, I personally think it should be an element because of I, I I see a central continuity with Old Testament worship. So I, I do think that's you know there there are things that have been fulfilled. Anything related to the temple has been fulfilled. Um, because we are the temple, Christ is the temple, and so those things are done away with. You know, we don't give um, offerings in the sense of you know sacrifices, that sort of thing. But still, fundamentally, there's continuity because um, we are the temple, and so there's going to be the things that have not been fulfilled. Like there's no sense in which the the offering I don't think has been fulfilled. Um, there's still a need for the ministry of God to be supported, and even. Um, if you're with us for the Deuteronomy sermons, in, at the end of Deuteronomy 14, the offerings that were collected in the Old Testament actually correspond exactly to the two things that we do. So there is things that support the ministry, and there are things that support the poor. So it's like a diaconal sort of labor. And they, they had the same two things that were collected. Um, there's even like a greater regularity with the ministry one, just like ours, and less regularity with the, um, the offering collection for the poor. Um, so I, I do think there's fundamental continuity. So like, unless we can show something has been fulfilled, I think we continue to do it. So there are churches, though, that... So a church that would not see a tithe as being a New Testament element of worship or the collection, um, they would typically just have the plate out, and they would just expect people to, to do it themselves. And the reason is, is because of the regular principle. They would say, you know what, we don't see positive warrant for it, and, uh, and, therefore, um, and therefore we are... Um, we're not going to do it. I will say as well, and I did argue this, if, if you want to go back to the sermons at the end of Deuteronomy 14, I do think there is actually positive warrant for it in the New Testament. Um, there is very much an expectation that, for instance, like for diaconal things, like in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, um, that, that um, the collections for the struggling churches would be made, particularly, I think that's the one in, in Jerusalem, uh, would be collected during the worship service on the Lord's Day. So the idea is like, when you come together, you're going to take this up. Um, there's something similar said, I believe, in 1 Corinthians 16 as well. Um, there's, uh, there are a few places, other places, like Philippians 4, where there are, there are statements related to the, um, the church receiving money for various things related to ministry. And um, so I don't, I, don't, I don't think there's any reason to think that that element did not continue into the New Testament for those reasons. And therefore, it would be right to do it during the worship service. And then its placement would be based on the logic of, of any of these things. It's somewhat free. Uh, so again, there's going to be broad consistency. And so if you're, if you're worshiping in another church, for instance, and, and they collect the offering at a different point, it's still very easy to see what the logic is and like the way you are to see it. Uh, in some ways, it's a thanksgiving for the things that God has done. And you confess your faith in some way in those things. There's some kind of indication that you are giving that you believe them. And you're recognizing that if those things are true, 
then you, you've got to give something to God in thanksgiving to him. That's, that's the, the idea and the logic. Um, okay, we are just about out of time. Let me just summarize really quickly the end. Um, since I've already kind of mentioned on it, uh, uh, mentioned these things, so there's the movement, the kind of direct ministry of the word. So we have the scripture reading, pastoral prayer, and then uh, we have hymns bookending the preaching of the word. So that, that would be one movement with regard to the ministry of the word itself. Uh, and that's followed by then the ministry of the table. As I said, that's a very, very ancient distinction. Um, in the benediction, uh, what's happening is God himself is the one who's pronouncing a blessing on his people. So in, in that, I am, I am uh, uh, representing God to you. And when I give the blessing on you, it is God himself putting his blessing on you. You go forth in blessing. And this follows the logic of the epistles as well. The epistles always begin with, um, actually, it's very similar to the movement that we have. There's a, a greeting, worship, and then at the end, there's going to be some kind of doctrinal matters or things from the word. And then there's going to be at the end, there's going to be the, the, uh, a benediction. So a declaration of the people being blessed. So if, if, for instance, those things were read during the worship service, which they were, um, it would have followed the logic that would have been very close, at least in the broad outlines of, of what we do and what every Reformed church has done. So uh, I can't take any more questions. We do have to go. Let me, um, there, there may be a chance, if you do have particular questions on what we do, um, I have no idea if I'll be teaching next week, but if I am, I will take them. So we're, we're still praying for uh, Pastor Erickson that he would be able to, to uh, join us and come back. So um, let's, let's pray. Father, we, we do thank you for uh, the worship of your name and for the revelation of it. And we do pray, Lord, that as we think about uh, these particular elements, we do ask that you would uh, help us to worship you with our whole beings, to be completely engaged in the worship of your name, and that, um, that Lord, truly, we would, we would be able to follow what's going on, that our hearts would be engaged in it, and that, Lord, we would be in awe as we come into your presence, that we would uh, truly see that when certain elements are given, that you are speaking to us, and that when other elements are given, we are speaking back to you. Lord, give us a sense of the glory of this, and may it be that as we do come into your presence now as a people, that, uh, that your name uh, would be lifted up, and that we would have a, a true sense of awe. For Lord, we do ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about our church, please visit our website at newcovenantopc.com. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. May God enlighten the eyes of your heart that through the preached word, your eyes may be opened to behold the glory of Christ more and more.